Hi, welcome to Project Geospatial. I'm Adam Simmons, and this is a uh, new, another segment of Late Night Geo. We haven't done one of these in a few months, but uh, for this year, starting off, I have a special guest with me, Mike De La Fleur. And uh, in this episode with Mike, after he introduces himself, we're going to try and get into some discussions about the geospatial industry, maybe talk a little bit about the history of it, um, his involvement with it, and uh, maybe just talk about the uh, past geoints. So uh, we'll see where the evening takes us with that. Mike? Thanks, Adam. Yeah, I'm Mike Delafleur. Um, 32 years into the geospatial industry. Uh, came out of college in the late 80s in a much different era from Virginia Tech. Um, got my TSSCI clearance right out of college. Uh, first security officer told me, you have a job for life if you can stand it. And so... Uh, from there, uh, you know, I've never left um, 32 years supporting IMINT, GeoInt, uh, some human support thrown in there. I work for a variety of companies. I was never in the military or the government. Um, uh, did some really interesting projects, worked with some great people. Uh, right now I'm working at Mantech, uh, running something that we work on together, our geospatial demonstrations capability, our R&D project that's internal. Um, we do a lot of good things for our customers and we're trying to learn some things. So yeah, it's great to be here today. So do you want the mic back now? Uh, yeah, go for it. A couple questions we'll start off with first. I want to back up a second for the, uh, we have a pretty general audience. Mike just threw out a bunch of different terms out there that are, uh, <laughs> that are more, more um, defense intelligence related. So he mentioned IMINT, that's imagery intelligence, HUMINT, human intelligence. And those are basically uh, specialties that you can get involved with, career specialties you can get involved with that focus on different aspects of information collection. So imagery being, you know, either satellites, aerial, or... Um, uh, you know, different types of imagery collected looking at the ground, uh, human intelligence, basically uh, uh, what you can gain from inf information gathered by, well, I'm not going to say talking to people, but, um, you know, your typical, I'm going to say your typical spy stuff, but more, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but so, so let's, let's dive into a little bit. What's what, how did you get started in the industry? how did you get started in the geospatial industry? Well, that's a good question. Um, when I was growing up, my dad was totally into maps. Uh, we used to read the road atlas the way people read magazines. And I still do that to this day. You probably do too, Adam, to things like that. So we're totally into maps. Um, my late aunt Jane was a geography major. She got her master's degree at Syracuse University. And she had books on geography and cartography. Um, I remember a, a classic by Edward Robinson called The Nature of Cartography, I think, or it's just, it, it was like the seminal 20th century book on cartography back in the day when we started. I literally did um, peel coat, scribe coat, and um, what, what are those ink things? I forget the, the lettering, Leroy lettering. Uh, yes, he's, he's looking at me like, like, what are you talking I about? Like I know the name of what you're talking about. Right. But, you know, it was more like a um, hard copy graphical production. You produced photo ready maps in layers and you used pins to pin all the different layers on uh, with Zipatone and things like that. And then you used a large format, highly accurate camera in a studio like this to take a picture of the map. And that's how you made maps for publication and things like that. So that's how I learned. So, so you start off literally making real maps from on paper. 
Um, so, uh, well, obviously the industry grew a little bit beyond that. What did you, how'd you move on to defense and Intel stuff? How'd you get involved with a bigger geospatial industry? Um, my, uh, I was in a band in college and our lead guitarist's girlfriend, now wife, her dad worked for a company called DBA systems, long gone company, but a great company. It was a photogrammetry company. Uh, photogrammetry, the art and science of uh, making accurate measurements from overhead imagery, like the stuff that you talked about. Um, so as a geography undergraduate major, he snapped me up for eight years of shift work on a classified project um, uh, involving imagery. We actually, I can say this now, the whole thing was um, classified till the mid-90s, and then we we got to tell everybody what we did, but it was basically packaging um, government satellite imagery up for use by the defense mapping agency at the time. We used to build their uh, packages that they would use to do map production from imagery with. So it was actually very interesting. Um, you know, I got to learn about a lot of cool classified things in the 90s that were, you know, pretty exquisite at the time. Um, and so I got started in the industry that way. And, and, you know, you talk about how the industry has changed. I, um, you know, my first job was running um, three sets of VAX 11780 mainframe computers and a, and a, and a digital VAX PDP 11, I think, where the keyboard was like you typed on it and it printed on paper. So we've come a long way. Um, the, the equipment we used to do the work was like, exquisite and expensive, um, you know, soft copy, you know, digital imagery work on these. These were like $5 million a copy, these machines to do the work 30 years ago. You might be familiar with some of them from your Air Force uh, days, some of the um, things, but they look like they were right out of Star Trek, you know, real buttons and dials and wheels and stuff that spun and all that stuff anyway. So a lot of changes I've seen in the industry. Um, when I went to grad school, I went to George Mason for grad school in the mid nineties. They said, Hey, there's this thing called GIS. You got to learn it. Um, you know, painful learning of arc info with command line commands and things like that. Um, but they said, you know, GIS and cartography and, what you've been doing is all going to merge with information technology shortly. And sure enough, uh, I, my professor was correct. Uh, one of the best classes, I actually I took a photogrammetry class that was great because, um, you know, this is sort of like the history of geo, right, in the 20th century. Um, he was the lead photogrammetrist, the lead mapping guy for the Apollo lunar missions. So he was he was an adjunct professor, but he was the guy that did the mapping projects, and they built simulations for the uh, astronauts to practice the lunar landings. So back in the day, um, you know, and now we would do this all in computers. They built 3D models by hand based on lunar imagery. They and some of them would be like not the whole globe, but like a quarter globe. They put it in a room like this. And then they'd build these metal tracks and put cameras on them. And they would simulate filming the approach to the lunar landing and going down to the surface. So this totally analog thing. So so little full discretion here. You're not describing the actual moon landing on camera. You're actually describing the simulation they did the practice, right? right. So we're not, we're, we're, we, 
with the moon landing happened. <laughs> that, that, that's what they say. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, but you know, so very cool, like cartographic history things, right? Oh, um, and you know, and the more you bring, the more you bring this out of me, the more I realize, like I have been doing this a long time, and it's not really been a long time, but you know, the technology and the practice has just advanced. Um, so much like, um, you know, by the time we got to the two thousands, we got email in our desktop computers and, and, um, we didn't have to pay millions for custom graphics software and things like that to do big image processing. And then, I mean, you know, um, GIS and, uh, imagery stuff kind of went mainstream with the internet. You know, now we all see commercial satellite imagery on our Google maps backdrop and, you know, there's really no end in sight to the to the possibilities. I can say that the job I did for eight years is now completely automated. All of us, all like 30 people that did this job, completely automated. A computer does it all now. So my first job was I was literally automated out of existence. <laughs> <laughs> so, so amazing. You still have a job now, right? Um, so, so with that said, uh, how, you know, you just described a good history of maybe 30 years, right? And, and, and what would you say the technology or thing that came about that really just accelerated everything to drastically changing how things were from your perspective? Well, two things. One was like just the, the rise of personal computing and the power that people and even organizations could harness like on their desktops. You couldn't do image processing or GIS on a personal computer initially. I mean, we did our work on mainframes and, and our, our disk storage was in the megabytes. Our five megabyte disks were like this big around. There were platters, right? Um, and so just, you know, the rise of computing power. Um, and an, another real big thing was you remember in the Clinton era, they, um, I forget what it was called, but it was a presidential director. Whatever it was, we could do commercial satellite imagery. And so, you know, and you're very familiar with that industry, but the 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 original companies that um, um, did did commercial satellite imagery, you know, mostly on government contracts started. And that, that started to um, enable organizations outside of defense, um, you know, to, to do things like that, you know, and all of a sudden like real estate and construction and all of a sudden, you know, you had all these other players in the game. So, so just the computing thing and the commercial remote sensing act of 1996 or whatever it was, it to seem to me like, you know, big things in our industry. Um, and, but you know, you now it's just like every year or something, new is happening, you know, whether I'm, I'm sure I'm not doing the mic right here. Um, like, um, you know, whether it's just cloud computing or AI or small sats, you know, now it's like, you know, there's more stuff than you can shake a stick at. So. No, awesome. I, I'm, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> you know, and give people some perspective, you know, I'm not entirely sure how big the images were then in terms of scanning them on the computer. Uh, but images now range from, you know, a big, satellite images depending on how big the footprint is etc you know um you know sometimes uh, 500 megs to a couple gigs or if you're dealing with a massive mosaic file of a of a county for example um you you could, you could be dealing with uh, anywhere between 10 to 50 gigabytes of imagery of a single image so uh trying to do that i, I, I can't can't conceive that being done in the 90s right 
Good point. I was I was there. I can say I was there when we we did a lot of our imagery work for maps on um, film positives, like you know um, uh, rolls of film uh, that are backlit on a light table, right? And anybody who's my age or older is probably. And you may have too spent some time on a Richards light table. So, so it, it, I'm not sure if what brand of light table it was, but um, I, when I was in the Air Force, I had the pleasure of, I'd never worked in the ninth intelligence squadron. My squadron was the 13th intelligence squadron when I was at Beale Air Force Base. And uh, although we worked on Predators and, U, and the, the uh, digital version of the U2, digital photography from U2, uh, the ninth intelligence squadron that was downstairs from us at the time, um, when we were all in the same building, they still worked on uh, wet film imagery. And I'm not entirely sure they still did today, but as of 10 years ago, uh, they were still doing that. And uh, it was super high quality stuff, amazing to watch. And they're still going through. So I had the pleasure to look and tour around, but all those analysts were still looking at light tables um, original light tables, same kind you actually see in the Smithsonian down the street. Uh, they were working on it, and you have to look the little microscope eye to look at the that, what's on the film first, you know. And uh, and it was impressive. And those film rolls, I think, was by Kodak or something. And they they were massive, massive things, massive rolls, miles and miles of film. Yeah, I can say where I worked for the first ten years of my career was the biggest Kodak. Um, installation in the world as far as just the number of feet of film that went through there every year um, and you can look it up on the internet I won't go in here but um, uh, films made of, of silver halide you know that's a key component in film it's very expensive um, uh, we had a bug farm on the plant that used bacteria to decompose the film to recover the silver halide to reuse literally it was some sort of biological bug bacteria thing to break the film down and recover the silver halide and store it and then use it to make new film. So, but um, it was really cool. I want to say the mid nineties. Yeah. Everything seemed like it was the mid nineties um, <laughs> when I was doing that. Um, we went from hard copy. We started doing what we called soft copy you know, digital imagery operations. We had these sun microsystems workstations, you know, they were like, you know, one of them was probably like $300,000, you know, something like that. They, it, they, had a, they, had a, they, they had an awesome sole source contract. I, they must've been it. Cause those things were over the price, hundreds of thousands of dollars per machine. And I can tell you what, there wasn't really as much to them as sun would like to say there was. <laughs> Yeah, I think you probably were like me. We were still entering things on a Unix command line to yeah, do exactly. work. Um, but um, when we first started doing some operations with digital imagery, we got the imagery on super VHS tapes, like the VHS tapes you would get from the video store. But, you know, higher capacity. I guess super VHS held, I don't know how many megabytes or gigabytes. But we would literally get a VHS tape for one image and a tape player we put it in and then you know it loads it into whatever it did and then you're you can tan and scroll around the image and uh, it was pretty cool i mean at the time it was like wow this is like amazing right you know now we would be annoyed having to do something like that but um but you know i, I guess i could say it was revolutionary i mean the industry that we were in you know they spent a lot of money on the stuff a lot of r&d and so sometimes we got to see the first wave of technology doing things so, so yeah, so that was the 90s. 
Um, I think the big thing I remember at the start of the GEOINT conference, like the first one in 2003, the big thing with the internet and um, all that stuff was the um, the OGC, the Open Geospatial Consortium. There was all of a sudden like, we have all these computers that can talk to each other and we can do things. We need standards so we can talk, we can exchange imagery and GIS information. And so that was a big deal in the, um, just to open up the exchange of information, stuff we take for granted today, right? Like I know, like I could put up a server and put some files on it and you could put them up and I, you could lay your stuff on mine and I could give you my stuff. That's all because we can talk to each other, right? With these standards and use these standard file formats and stuff. And so um, first GeoInt, and this is my first funny GeoInt story. Um, um, we did a big interoperability demonstration. The GeoInt conference started in 2003. The, um, the people I worked with at a company called TAS, T-A-S-C, stood up um, the USGIF. Uh, uh, my boss at the time, I'm, I promised I wouldn't name drop him, but Stu, Stu Shea was the boss in our group. You can name drop him, it's all good. Right, but, but it's important because he was the original, you know. He's one of the founders. He was the founder. I, you know, I'm pretty sure it was him and a close group of associates. It was their idea. Once NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, stood up, you know, DMA became NEMA, the National Imagery and Mapping Agency, and then we merged imagery and GIS into NGA. And once that happened, um, it's a big deal. And um, uh, the founders felt they needed something to bring the community together. And I think their template was the Air Force, the Space Symposium that happens everywhere in Colorado Springs. You know, they said, we need our version of the Space Symposium for NGA. So um, I was at TAS, which was North of Grumman at the time. Um, and so we did a lot of work at work getting ready for the first conference. And to wind that story back around, um, you know, the theme of it was interoperability. And we all multi-vendor, multi we all participated in this big interoperability demo where we all could talk to each other like all of our demos could talk to each other on the floor and you know ostensibly we could work together in practice it didn't work quite that way but um you know we did a lot of cool things and so i worked for north of grum in a big company right um jim clapper was the director of nga at the time and so you know the, the corporate handlers and it, it takes dozens of people in weeks of strategizing to do something like this to, you know, this, you've been at many GEOINs, um, to get the director down onto the show floor and then come to our booth for a demo. And so I'm at the end of the chain. I am the guy doing the demo, right? So everybody does their job. They Sherpa this guy, uh, yeah, <laughs> and and in like, in military terms, we call him a horse holder, right? Is that an army term? I don't know. I think but, we have other words for them. That's so common, right? But you know, that's I guess I've worked with enough West Pointers. They call them horse holders. So, um, right. So, um, so General Clapper and his uh, was a general. Yeah, he was Air Force. And uh, well, I don't, was he? Um, no, I'm blanking. Uh, yeah. I, anyway, edit this part out for the. <laughs> No, it's live. It's too late. For, for, you know, but my mom said she's going to listen to the recorded version because it's too late. Um, so he gets to the booth. It's great. It's like, and you know, I'm, I'm like 
ready to go. You know, we've got our demo, some disaster scenario in New Orleans, because that's where we were. Um, I was like, hey, okay, here's our demo. You know, we're doing this. We're bringing this data in, OGC. And uh, the thing we had for our demo, which goes back to my other theme about uh, technology, was this thing called a tablet PC. Do you remember tablet PCs? Do I remember tablet PCs? Yes, I remember tablet PCs. <laughs> okay. I barely remember them, but um, so I had a tablet PC. This is 2003. This is basically a functional iPad, what, 10 years before its time, almost five years before its time. It was pretty ahead of its time. For those young people, Apple was not the first to come out with iPads, iPhones, or whatever, at least the concept of it, or even the MP3 players of iPods. Um, many companies did it. They just were, weren't as good in the marketing as uh, Apple was. That's correct. So I got this tablet PC. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool, you know. And so I start going into my demo spiel, and he goes like, what is that? I'm like, it's a tablet PC. So can I see that? And he's like, hey, this is pretty cool. And he turns to his guy, and he's like, hey, can we get some of these? And and the guy's like, oh, okay, you know. And I was like, yeah, that's really cool. Hey, thanks. Moves on to the next demo. So, you know. The only thing he got out of that was that a tablet PC existed. Of course, you know, I'm like, there's my first moment in the spotlight cut short, but a good memory. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's funny you say that. It's, it's amazing how you start off with trying to give a demo on the thing that's important to your company or organization. And back then it was too easy to have, we'll call it eye candy, that drew them into the tool you're using rather than the example that, that you're trying to show them of what, what's portrayed. And the, uh, I guess the story I have is really the Google earth, right? Um, I was tasked with showcasing Google earth, what we can do with it, the different data feeds we're bringing in. And I think the booth I was in as an air force guy, I was, uh, my first geo went was at 2000 and I want to say it was 2010. It was actually 2000. Was that the new Orleans one? 2010. Um, yeah, we, that was the last new Orleans one. I believe it was in 2010. And I believe that was my first GOINT, and I was tasked as a liaison to the NRO, and I was I happened to do booth duty where I was given an example of different feeds coming into uh, Google Earth, and uh, and and that that was the thing was showcasing how we can combine all this data together from other agencies and organizations into one application. Unfortunately, everybody, even the government people, stopped by my booth didn't even care about the data; they just cared about oh, I can scroll around and look for my house. And I'm just like, yes. Yeah. So I I felt like a glorified Google salesman because all I was doing was showing Google Earth around. And and I have to say that probably should have been a good highlight and message to the community right there. It wasn't about the data at that point. It was actually about the data accessibility or, or I'm sorry, the, 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 the uh, ease of use for a tool that, that was freely available um, that could outbeat any of the proprietary or paid for tools that were you know, a hundred times more expensive. And this thing is freely available. That should have been the exemplar that taken away from the community. Unfortunately, I don't think even today that really latched on as well from the use cases because that tool is Google is still around today and still outbeating and outperforming in terms of how easy it is to use and the versatility of it. Even though Google doesn't support it as much as they used to, it's it's the the uh the ease and use and friendliness of that tool is still around. And, and I think for, I was stuck for almost four or five years throughout my Air Force career being a glorified Google salesman under the table. Not, I mean, I wasn't really selling it, but 
<laughs> I was just stuck showcasing Google Earth everywhere. We're all Google salespeople. That's our motto at Mantech. Um, hope, hope you're not listening, CEO of Mantech. Um, um, so, so yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so, so, so yeah. I mean, right? It's like, and and that riffs on the earlier thing. You know, you asked me about the technology things and Google Earth. At that point, that was the next big thing, right? Um, you know, whether it was first, it was commercial imagery, then it was the internet, and then and then uh, Google Earth, in, in a lot of ways, you know, brought it to the masses, if you will. Um, I was on a analysis project five years ago at a government agency where I actually um, took a break from managing things and was actually a geospatial analyst for a year again. Um, and everybody loved Google Earth. And I'm like, hey, we got other things we can use here, people. No, nope, I like Google Earth. It's easy. Well, once again, it's the message doesn't go use Google Earth. I think it's just... I think many companies should have took a hard look at what that tool was and what it's doing and redesigned some of the workflows that they had in place because that was the key right there is the workflows were overcomplicated. So everything, everybody navigated to something that was easy to install, easy for the users to use. And once again, the versatility, and it wasn't Google Earth itself that was incredible. At the time, it's, it's, it's kind of shooting myself in the foot right now, but is the KML, uh, the, now that's no GC format, but KML format um, was actually, it was it was a very strong and versatile, but it's almost like, I don't want to call it the geospatial GeoJSON at the time, but in some ways it was. It, it, it produced a super flexible a geospatial format, and people are like, well, well, a lot of people preferred shapefiles. But the interesting thing about the KML is it could be live and dynamic at the same time too. And it can do a lot of different things that Shapefile cannot. Um, uh, the only the only thing that's shooting the community now in the foot is the fact that everybody's trying to figure out how to convert all their KML files that they've spent decades putting into out of KML going the other way, and it's it's not as easy to go backwards. Um, uh, but either way, there's a lot of lessons learned there on why it was so successful. I don't think the community still, I think it takes it for granted. And why they almost got screwed out of, <laughs> you know, look at Esri, look at the damage it did to Esri for a little while. Yeah, I remember I was at a company that um, was um, had a lot of involvement with Google Earth. Um, a couple people you probably know. But they Google decided they were going to pull the plug on, I want to say, was it the front or the back end of that? They deprecated. It was the back. It was the back end. And, you know, it, that like the reverberations throughout the military industrial complex were huge because, you know, like in the military, so many people used Google earth for mission planning and things like that. And they put all this stuff to buy it and develop in their budgets. And they work in these five-year increments. And it was just like, um, I think in the end, a third party company bought, you know, I don't know the license or, or the rights. So, or, so it ended up, ended up becoming, I think a, a huge portion ended up becoming open source. This is actually isn't too long ago, but the, uh, the issue with it was once again, Google failed at the marketing and PR side of things, actually but mainly the business plan for how to sell this to the government. Cause they didn't understand the use case. Um, they sold globes, globe servers, and they made a lot of money off of that, but they underestimated 
how many users those glow servers actually reached across the wider DOD community because you had maybe three or four big glow. I mean, you had probably a dozen global servers around the entire DOD, but two, but three or four big global server uh, servers from between the Army, NGA, and the Air Force. Um, uh, but they probably, I think, upwards of between 100 and 200 thousand users relied on this this service. It was incredible. Uh, and so when they started killing it, they thought they were only killing but probably a handful of contracts for the globe servers. And what? And keep in mind, the client itself was free. So, um, you know, looking back, should Google have charged for Google Earth itself as a license to make it more of a viable business? Uh, and 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 so, and what would have been appropriate? Because it, the most attractive thing was how. The, the client was free. And technically, you didn't even need to load a Globe server. You can actually trick the server into being cached from the internet and do all kinds of tricks to load it locally in your server. So kind of little tricks of the trade from the local unit standpoint to get by some of the uh, – you can use it as a generic viewer, basically. And and that was that was the impressive thing. That it goes back to that versatility. So I don't want to make this all about Google Earth. It's a, it's a huge part of the geospatial industry in the last 20 years. That's for sure. That gets undertold. So we've been sort of going on this timeline since the early nineties and we got to Google earth and um, uh, that's an important inflection point to use like one of those manager contractor words. Um, So yeah, Google earth is great. I just used it. I'm moving in two months and I just, I built a project in Google earth to zoom, zoom through my neighborhood to see if I could walk from my house to downtown were there sidewalks? What did the walk look like? Or you know, you press the street button a few times. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, you just—I mean, it's a great tool. Every year I go on vacation in Europe, and I like—I got to drive around some crazy European city. So you do like mission planning with it, right? I mean, that's what people do, right? It's got a thousand uses. I think the biggest thing was is the initial the services behind it was the initial backbone for doing like the Google Maps and the satellite side of things. It worked in conjunction with it for for many many years, and and it at the very least between the Google Maps and and Google Earth, it brought geospatial to the generic consumer, and that's actually another big we'll call it geospatial revolutionary um, uh, uh, point of reference is how everything reached the masses and that's actually helped democratize geospatial in some ways. Uh, but going back to the Geoin symposium, <laughs> let's circle back a little bit. Um, those were interesting too. I mean, you were talking about the first one and you said 2003, uh, but can you talk a little bit more about how those conferences evolved in how you've seen them over the years and perhaps how they've evolved with the, how the industry evolved, right? Yeah. Great question and some some pretty good memories from gosh almost 20 years ago which is scary um the first ones were very i mean this is not a giant conference by worldwide conference standards even today what is it like five thousand six thousand people big but not not like amazon reinvent big right or something like that or dotus big uh it's a specialized conference the first ones were um they were kind of a celebration just you know nga had stood up the, the the term geoint was invented, you know, around them and and applied to what NGA did, and so um, it was probably about twenty five hundred people at the first couple of conferences. Um, like I said, this um, the first couple were just like 
geospatial were happy to be here. So it was like um, a much more, um, I would say, restricted set of vendors and companies displaying what I would call the usual suspects, right? The big defense integrators, the big software companies, the big uh, GIS and imagery companies. It was very geo-focused. Um, the industry just wasn't that it was big, but it wasn't like giant at that point, right? We were just getting going on the internet and 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 the uh, the um, possibilities for GeoInt. So um, definitely a more focused, um, a lot of it was like, now I look back, it was like a period piece. It was like, you know, predominantly guys, um, you know, um, uh, there weren't as the reputation representation of women was just not there it wasn't, it wasn't as diverse that's what i was trying to say um you know the it was much more of a party atmosphere the first 10 years of the conference they did like the geo walk or the geo crawl that's where it stopped in new orleans <laughs> right and 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 doing that coming out party for a whole industry in new orleans was pretty intense. I mean, I missed one whole day of the second year because I was so hungover because we were out all night <laughs> in the French Quarter. But that was like that's what everybody was doing. Um, so early on, it was just a. It's funny to think like 2003 is a different era, but it really was. I mean, they had like um, um, conventions used to have like what they call cigar girls, right? Just basically scantily clad women walking around with like boxes of cigar and candy and things like that. You know, all what, what we used to call booth babes, right? Every, everybody had those. I mean, those are, you know, appropriately passe now. Um, but it was just, it was a different era and I'm kind of amazed because it really wasn't that long ago uh, when we were doing all that stuff. So I, I'd say, I would say that started to really go in mass once again, New Orleans, 2010. And after that, it was a drastic change over the next two or three years. And so I would say it's been 10 years, nearly 10 years since uh, we'll call it that era, era sort of ended and things began to uh, change for the better. I would say from a, from, uh, from more professionally focused, it wasn't the party atmosphere you began to be, even though it was really fun. Right. Yeah, actually with the, about the best party I've ever been to in my whole life was at Geo in 2004. Um, next year second, second. yeah um there's a famous bar in new orleans there's finney called called pat o'brien's i don't know if you've been to pat o'brien's yes you've been it, it's sort of like a must-do tourist stop in the french quarter right it's an anchor tenant if you will and um two of the sponsoring companies north of brumman <coughs> excuse me and a uh, lockheed martin you know rented out pat o'brien's for their portion of the geo walk which was basically companies team up and they rent out restaurants and bars you walk to each place you get a pin they serve you free food and drinks at all these places right um a, a lot of fun and i met a lot of people that i'm friends with to this day at these conferences but um so northrop and lockheed rent out pat o'brien's and they serve free hurricanes to 800 people all night. Unlimited free hurricanes. Um, are you familiar with the hurricane? Uh, I'm familiar with the hurricane. I'm also familiar with the grenades they had. I don't know if you remember those. those yeah. so this is, I don't even know how to describe them. They're just ball of glowing juice that you drink. I think it was just nothing but tequila or something like that. 
right. There was a competing bar that did um did that grenade that that green thing in the in the a famous drink. What I learned later about a, a um a hurricane is uh, from a New Orleans native, which you know the proprietary recipe for a hurricane contains between eight and eleven shots of different liquor. You know, in a sixteen ounce drink, and so they're slinging these things like at eight o'clock at night to people by nine o'clock. I remember we were carrying coworkers by the arms and legs and putting them in cabs and sending them home. Cause it's like Kool-Aid and they're just like, you know, I mean, pretty good. And I mean, these are responsible people, but that stuff just, it sneaks up on you and it's vicious. And so, you know, I mean, that's why we don't do these things today. Right. It's a, so, so, so I'd say what is is that why the conference was always maybe four or five days long to give another day in between kind of like the second day was like, oh, we'll see what we can get around, you know? Yeah, well, I, everybody was very excited. It was a new thing. We were in New Orleans, which is naturally a party atmosphere. Um, so but I do remember coworkers, um, you know, getting piled in the cabs and stuff. And I remember I was with the people paying for the party and 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 um like the management of Pat O'Brien's came up and said, um, you know, your time's up. You want to extend? And they're like, yeah, sure. You know, give me the bill or whatever. They spent like, I don't know, a hundred thousand, 200,000 bucks on this party. <laughs> so, so it was a big party. So, so the early years were like pretty rowdy, you know, a less diverse crowd. Um, you know, as things got going, you know, we settled into a routine, right. Um, uh, the conference started to go between like what Orlando, Nashville, New Orleans, New Orleans dropped out because the convention center was too small. <clears throat> they added Nashville and San Antonio to the next round of stuff. The best, when I say the best, the most fun I had at the, were at the couple of San Antonio conferences I went to as we're getting into the 2010s. Oh no, I loved I love the Riverwalk there. It was a great place, uh, but it was, you know, so so typically we should back up a second. For those who know about, about the GON Symposium uh, a little bit, they're not just placed anywhere in the United States. They're actually usually placed strategically around, at least most of them are, around locations that um, have some type of government presence. San Antonio has a big uh, military presence around it. Uh, 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 Tampa has a massive military presence around it. Uh, where else? Um, actually, I'm not honestly sure what's around New Orleans. Yeah. So, so, uh, DC for example, and then, uh, well, St. Louis was the last year and then, uh, Denver is big military presence as well. Uh, and then, so I should back up. St. Louis is, is the home of, uh, NGA, uh, West. So, Lots of these have strategic locations to bring out the most people so they don't have to travel as much or cycle through them so or focus on specific aspects of the DoD community, right? Yep. So, like I said, San Antonio is great. There's people always got pushed into the river walk after having too many <laughs> drinks. There's always some um, great story one year, you know, the classic thing when you go to a convention you go to a, like a bar like a uh, howl at the moon if you're, I, I think people are familiar with howl at the moon right um uh there was one year um when um a lot of and i'm not going to name names even though i actually know some of these people um <clears throat> government seniors and other industry luminaries were encouraged to jump up on the stage 
and and sing their alma mater's fight song. <laughs> Look, you're not going to names, but I don't think it's an easy. wasn't Wasn't General Clapper one of those individuals uh, that? I don't think he jumped on the stage, but he he was well known for wearing a massive, massive cowboy hat in the establishments. It was it was really odd. I don't think I've ever seen a cowboy hat that big. Really, actually, I, um, with a friend of mine, that one, the first one I went to in New Orleans, he was in between his NGA gig and his um, DNI gig, if that's right. So he was a civilian. And he's like, this is great. We could buy him a beer in the bar and everything. And he was like, thanks, you know, uh, you know, cause he didn't have to, uh, you know, play the part, so to speak. But yeah, I know they, the current director was up there singing and got yanked and got an, uh, I think a talking to or something of that nature, not serious, but, but, um, you know, but everybody was just so enthusiastic, right? It's a great community. Uh, we're all really into it. And you put hundreds of us in the room and give us cheap drinks and then, you know, things happen well it's also a small community and you don't realize how small it is until you go to not maybe one geoint but i'd say about three geoints you realize that all of a sudden you know most of the people there and maybe not most of the people but it really feels like you know most of the people there you know i would say yeah there's a huge attrition or turnover by personnel and companies but you start to see the same i would say 30 or 40 percent of everybody year after year. And, and that's how close niche the community is. And then it's just a friendly crowd and meeting people you haven't seen in a long time. Right. Yeah. We used to call it, it's like our high school reunion every year, you know, it was just you, and a lot of people, you know, you worked with them for years, but then you only catch up with them once a year at the conference. I can still say with a high level of confidence that I will run into my friend, my colleague, my, whatever you call them, competitive now. Um, first guy I ever met at my first job in the industry 32 years ago, he will be there and I will say hi and he will say hi. So, you know, it's that kind of continuity that you talk about. Right. But I think what we've seen is um, as the 20 teens wore on, a lot of stuff happened. The workforce got younger and more diverse. I mean, it all seems younger to me now, <laughs> but you know, I, um, you know, geospatial um, analytics and it was mainstreamed also as a career, right? That's a, another change. Um, you know, we were kind of the oddballs back in the 80s and 90s. Like I was getting a graduate degree in that. It's like it's very esoteric, right? Very specific. But um, to a large extent, you know, geospatial technology, spatial technology is mainstream. So you get a lot of graduates, a lot of great programs. <clears throat> so so um, like a lot of things. And with the introduction of IT workforce got younger, more diverse, more technical. Um, you started to see like the Silicon Valley kind of companies coming in to the symposium, adding to the usual beltway bandit defense contractors. Um, and now I was really interesting. It was, I was really interested last year, so many different kinds of companies at the conference that I hadn't seen. And like, um, like a company like Bloomberg, you know, financial data, data companies, stuff that you would never think is geospatial or mapping. All of a sudden they're there because, you know, um, as we know on the projects we work on, you know, um, most data has, if not all, has a locational component and anything is now fair game to do geospatial analysis with. Uh, so um, it's, it's really quite a change. And at the same time, you know, like culturally, 
the symposiums themselves have have calmed down. They're more professional, but the companies still host really great fun events, and we all go to them. But you know, it's 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 just not quite the wild party it was for the first five years. So, so to talk more a little bit on the uh, industry-specific items, um, you, you mentioned quite a few of the new companies that come around. Uh, you know, and, and we touched a little bit about how GeoN itself has changed. But can you touch about for those who don't know about maybe the we'll, we'll talk about, about the younger crowd? Um, can you can you talk a little bit more about the purpose of some of these conferences? GeoN, you being the focus, but why is why are these conferences so important to the industry? Uh, why is uh, what kinds of things do companies expect to do there, or what kind of success do they expect to have there? And 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 maybe from the government side, what do they usually hope to achieve there um, uh, when they go to these things? I think the overall theme, of course, is is always is all the main focus was to bring. <clears throat> um, through the USGIF, the nonprofit, um, you know, to bring industry and government together in a way to advance our mutual interests. So um, a focus was always in every show I went to and every uh, organization I work with was, um, you know, it's a chance for all of us to get out of our offices and, and, and target and talk to current and potential customers to help them with their missions, right? They're looking for real solutions. They're looking for the art of the possible. Um, and, you know, over the years, I felt like the organizations I was with, we made quite a few positive government connections, even at the last year. And, um, we talked to a lot of folks in the government, like, I didn't know you could do that. Can you talk to me about this? Can you show me this technology? So it's a big learning thing. It's a big networking thing. Um, I've always found it. I mean, a lot of this is typical of any industry conference, right? A lot of it is the B2B, the business to business interactions, you know, or building partnerships um, with other people in the business, learning competitive intelligence and things like that. So, um, depending on the year and the location, um, a lot of times this conference is predominantly. Um, business industry. It's not as much government contract, you know, government budgets go up and down, uh, travel can be limited. Um, uh, last year's conference in St. Louis was excellent in the fact that a lot more government folks from NGA could go to the conference. It felt like a lot more, um, meaningful. So, so, so it's interesting you say that and not to diverge. Cause I think, I think you were still answering the question, but why, but I want to focus on that for a minute. You know, COVID was a big problem. It was a big disruption of the geo geoint. Um, they even skipped a year. Uh, 20, 2020 didn't really exist for the geoint symposium. Uh, twenty twenty one, they moved it. The St. Louis happened, and um, I think everybody was nervous that it wasn't going to be as successful. So it was ah, successful. Uh, but you say that uh, government, more government, had to had the chance to go. Um, what gave what gives you that perception? Why why is that the case? You know what what was what's your perspective on that? Well, you know, first of all, like I said, just being in St. Louis, close to the NGA workforce, it is a day trip for a lot of people that otherwise couldn't travel to the conference. Um, <clears throat> but um, you know, typically, you work for a company, you have a booth at the conference, you run demos, you know, your marketing, um, but. In, in many years past, it's like, you know, you're kind of there, but there's not a lot of real action going on at your booth. 
uh, last fall in St. Louis, um, we literally couldn't get out of our booth for like four hours at a time because people, either were the industry or government, constantly coming by asking us what we're doing, really interested in what we're doing. We had meaningful engagements and, and things like that. And, and to your point, I had no, I thought it could be like a big flop, right? No one will come, no one will care. But instead, I felt like there's a lot of pent up energy um, to re to re-engage with each other. And um, I think it's a good idea that they're going to rotate it through St. Louis now every other year. Now, not to g- give any credit to the conference or people interested, could that also be a uh, um, say something about your own company's marketing and sales and bring people to your booth constantly, right? Or is that just, did you see the same thing at other booths uh, around GON2? It was just a constant crowd and, and people got as much attention as, as, as your company. It seemed like from the friends and colleagues I talked to, a lot of people got significant interactions right and and they they um they correlated our story um one thing i have learned over the years and i really learned last year is um you know the the geography of the show floor itself the placement of your booth in the location is very important right oh, yeah. you, you know you can be on a main highway or you can be back in a cul-de-sac in a neighborhood and um, you know people don't go to that neighborhood as much we our booth our mantech booth was like first booth or second booth on the right right after you come out of all the big sessions so it's the first thing everybody saw and so um you know that really drove a lot of traffic to the booth I'm sure in some ways those with the, uh, so, so at GWENT, um, every company is given these scanners and they have to, usually it'd be a good idea to scan each one of the people's badges. So you, you're not getting an inventory of who's attended the booth, but I would think that also keeps track of trends on how many people and which booths get the most attention and perhaps gives them, I'm, I'm thinking USGF has this kind of insight is what areas, what neighborhoods per se get the most attention and then next year it'll influence your, your next year's layout right is that is that typically what you think yeah we've in the past um in corporate efforts for the conference i've been involved with um you either get that prime location <clears throat> um and i be honest i think it was 50 percent good planning and 50 percent we just lucked out right i mean to be honest but um Mostly people want to cluster. There's different pavilions, right? In the government pavilion where the government, and when I say the government, it's primarily NGA, does all their demonstrations and, and their talks. Um, that's where the government decision makers go to talk or to be. And so you try to cluster around that pavilion um, if you want to interact with um, your customer base the most. So this next year, it's in uh, this this year, next month. In well, I got wait three or four weeks now. It's going to be in Denver, Colorado. Um, has uh, to my knowledge, has it ever been in Denver, Colorado before? No, it has not. Uh, what's your perspective of of how it might come out and uh, how it might turn out in Denver? Well, I think to your earlier point about the locations, there's a huge military and uh, intel presence in the denver area and it's also a big hub for the satellite commercial satellite image commercial satellite industry so there um you know air force is nearby 
Um, so um, I think you'll see strong representation from those government organizations, the Air Force, the, you know, um, whatever else is out in, in Denver. I think, you know, there's some facilities there. Um, it's going to be in a Gaylord, which is like in the big biodome. There, my, I, we've done Gaylords for GeoN in Tampa and Nashville. Not, no, not Tampa. Orlando and Nashville, right? In DC. And no, no, it wasn't DC. Right. And I want to say one more, but they're they're kind of the same. So in a sense that you get everybody in a in a big space and they can't leave. <clears throat> so I think, you know, Denver's going to be contained. It's in a it's in a Gaylord. They're great for facilitating these kind of conferences. Um, you know, other places like St. Louis or uh, had the convention center, that was great, kind of the equivalent. Um, so I think it's going to be good. I think you're going to get a, a different kind of government customer there than you usually get at least more of them. Um, maybe more space focused, more air force focused. Um, and, um, you know, it's going to be a great facility. Uh, there's nothing to do because the Gaylord apparently is like one mile from the airport. It's not anywhere near Denver. Um, so we're all going to be stuck in the, in the dome there. Keeps everybody from falling in the river, right? It's <laughs> So I think I think they do that. To, they, it, dev, it definitely isolates the party, <laughs> it keeps everybody out of trouble. Um, I'd say uh, so. So my favorite for well, I'd say multiple reasons, but I think some of my my favorite locations is still probably Orlando. Um, although San Antonio has grown on me the last couple of years, uh, uh, and well, St. Louis is starting to grow on me quite a bit too. But I'd still say Orlando and San Antonio are probably my uh, best geoints I've had there. What do you think is yours? Well, for sentimental reasons, I enjoyed New Orleans just because it was a great party and, and um, um, you know, the French Quarter at your doorstep. The problem is I don't remember. Right. <laughs> um, but the convention facility there is just not big enough. It's kind of small. It's not, like, ideal. Um, um, yeah, Orlando was easy. It was just a big complex. It was it was well done. It was it was easy to get in there, and you didn't have to go outside in the heat. If we had it in August, um, the the one downer about San Antonio I remember is like you have a five minute walk from your hotel to the convention center, but like it was like already like eighty degrees with one hundred percent humidity, and you're back in the day, right? We're all wearing full suits and ties. <laughs> By the time you get to the show, you're already like soaking through. Uh, so, um, but still, um, really a great city uh, to have a, a convention. And so, yeah, I like San Antonio. I liked Orlando. New Orleans, a sentimental favorite. So as we wrap up, I want to give you a chance. Um, is there any, uh, we'll say, uh, any other stories you like to tell about the GeoN Symposium? Um, any, any last minute ones that you'd like to share with the uh, audience? Here, Adam, let me check my notes. <laughs> you brought you, you brought a list of oh my gosh, you brought a whole list of stories here. We haven't even gone through this list. We might have to take a bathroom break and come back to this. <laughs> well, I told you the I told you the tablet PC one, then the the big party one. The uh we talked a lot about the early stuff. Um Howl at the Moon, okay. I talked about that. Um the one thing that really impressed me about the conference is um the roving packs of foreign nationals with notebooks and cameras that tended to move in clumps. <laughs> and I, I would say like, I, I remember specifically like the Chinese delegation 
you know, just moving around, taking pictures of everything, taking notes, going to all the sessions. I am always, so that's the one thing when it, when I was my first year, I was always impressed. I would say impressed wasn't the right word. I'm actually more confused and shocked that they allowed that type of thing, considering the audience, right? So, or the, considering the type of, uh, demographic that was at the conference we're talking about defense and intel related to companies and government there etc i i just i at the time i didn't understand the policy of it you not that that we didn't want to bring foreign nationals in especially our allies um but but you're right you even saw chinese delegations come in and we're thinking what is going on here you know what what, what went through your mind Oh, you know, just an eye opener, and I sort of got it right. It's it's an open conference. It's bringing a wider community together. Um, but um, I was privileged to be on the inside at the customer to get a couple of like classified opsec briefings for a couple of these conferences. And there's, you know, given the nature of the conference, the international flavor that can happen, and then the you know, high level government people to go in and out of there as speakers and, and whatnot. It's a pretty serious, invisible, but security OPSEC overlay on that whole thing that you never really see, but it's, it's there. So. Well, and, and that's not even getting into, um, aside from four nationals, uh, sometimes the USGF brought in significant amounts of celebrity guests as speakers. Um, well, at least more so in recently years. Um, I think one year you had William Shatner attend. And by the way, if I'm lucky enough, I have to reach out to somebody who has a really funny story to share about me and William Shatner and uh, me getting in trouble with security about that. Um, I know I was a big, big teaser there. Um, and uh, apparently I'm an exemplar in a security training manual of, of, uh, of, of a, of what not to do or what, what, what to, what to guard against, against your celebrity guests. Let's put it that way. Not to say I wasn't, nothing happened between me and William Shatner and that I was a starstruck individual who just wanted to meet him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I was, I was, uh, I was successfully distracted away from him. Uh, while he often did his thing. So that was, that was good. But yeah, yeah, it was, it was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Captain Kirk. Uh, they brought in, um, uh, who else? Uh, shy Israel and, uh, trying to remember his name. Um, it will come to me. Uh, another guy, the, the two, two basically tech celebrities from, uh, Silicon Valley at one point. And I think this last year, I cannot remember the celebrity they brought in, um, top of my head but yeah they bring in a lot of important people in the june to talk i what i like about that is to trying to find people from outside the industry to kind of i, I want to say inspire some things about technology that we don't typically get in defense and intel from the silicon valley side of things more from the commercial uh you know maybe you know i, I wouldn't be surprised if one of these years we get some elon musk or uh you know, Amazon's there all the time. Why, why isn't uh, Why isn't Jeff Bezos showing up to one of these things? Right? Yeah, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> but you know, I it, the William Shatner memory makes me smile because I was at that conference and and um, and you know, he, he's not a spring chicken by any means. I mean, he's he's probably was over ninety now. Isn't he? he he was you know ki- approaching ninety when he and, and, and I mean, man, he looked. 
good and he's you know he's he's speaking at at a conference full of thousands of people and you're 90 that's pretty good right you know i'd be happy just to be walking um but we're like he started talking and it was just like he was just all over the map figuratively um i don't know if you remember he did a really cheesy um promotional video for the u.s geological survey in the 80s that they used that that was that was his link to gis i don't remember there's it was like what was the early free gis software i want to say it was like atlas gis or something I, that sounds right but it was the one like when i was in school long ago it was the freebie that's what we had you know um and so he did a plug for the geological survey about the technology the new technology and and so uh, they started by showing us that video, and then he and then he burst on the stage live, and it was like, "Wow, it's Captain Kirk!" You know, <laughs> awesome man. He just started talking. I was like, "What is he talking about?" He's just going from topic to topic and rambling. I'm like, and I and I was like talking to my friend, like, "Can't believe they're letting this guy out as a loose cannon, going unscripted in front of this audience." You know, Who's for like stop the captain, <laughs> right? But I mean, but, but we were like, "What is he going to say?" Okay. <laughs> as long as he's not talking about climbing a mountain. Right. I mean, right. But you could, if you can say anything, he could, he could have easily said some really, you know, I, I sound like a Debbie Downer, but some offensive or inappropriate things. Uh, So we were holding our breath yet, you know, really entertained at the same time because not the usual geo went fair, which is always great because you've got, um, you know, the top government folks in the field talking about interesting things, but this was definitely different. Other than meeting people and uh, seeing old friends at this at the GeoN symposiums, what in terms of uh, what what technology are you hoping to look forward to at either this conference or the next conference? What do you hope to see evolve uh, here coming up? Well, a lot of what I learned at the last conference, and based on the project we work on together, you know, I'm all these little esoteric companies that are not in geospatial per se you know like i said like the bloombergs or or whatnot um i've seen a lot more of a university presence there than i than i used to and so i'm always curious to see what colleges and universities are coming to the forefront and 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 what they're doing um as far as technology um you know i think um i'm kind of interested in what you know the latest and greatest and like all the small sat companies you know the hawkeyes the planets you know all those kind of companies what what are they bringing um you know i kind of know the story on the on the integrators right we've seen them for a year and i count our company as one of them um even though they sometimes have some surprises um so you know new companies uh, non-traditional companies uh, universities i tend to focus on those kind of things how about you that's uh, turning the question back at me. That's a, uh, I should know this. Uh, and okay. So I think what I am actually hoping to see. Okay. So let me, let me take a step back. Um, I have hopes. I haven't seen any of this so far, but actually the last couple of years, I've been hoping a satellite company that's focused more on nighttime infrared or infrared related stuff. That's been, you know, I know SAR, I I mean, I've done all the sensor types, uh, but I've seen the SAR community stand up big time. EO has been out for decades because everybody, you know, that's just a given, right? But the one side of the spectrum, because I've, I've, you know, 
um, you know, is the infrared. I know how powerful it is. I've seen it, you know, we've seen it with uh, NASA's VIRS and MODIS uh, and, and, and with the power of high, re um, low resolution version of that. And then we, I've, so I've heard rumors of companies standing up for satellites launching. And I want to hear more about um, somebody doing infrared. And I said, I mentioned nighttime. I actually would like to see more companies do more stuff on the dark side of the planet, you know, planet planets dark, what I'm going to say 12 hours a day, but somewhere around that, um, uh, it's, it's, it's dark at the time, but a lot of human activity happens at night. And I love to see more monitoring of that and uh, mapping of that. There's, and, and, and knowing the planet is dark at night and there's a lot of activity going at night, there's just a whole side of the picture that we just don't quite see. Um, and I believe the SAR is the only one being able to do that right now is, is sometime I know they're capable of doing nighttime collect by SAR. I don't think we see it a lot. Um, the other thing that I am hoping to be surprised about, I know we hear a lot. I know I'm not even saying machine learning. Um, I, I am still waiting on a good, uh, we'll call it standardized workflow for machine learning. Everybody's still working on the basics. Of, I say basics. Uh, not just, I mean, they're just detecting objects. They haven't, a lot of people haven't quite linked it to a mission workflow that makes sense to everybody. Um, and, and I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen. Sure. I think everybody is. Uh, but the biggest thing I'm hoping to get surprised by is somebody to come around and go back to the basics. When I say go back to the basics, I think everybody's working on these big technologies, but the tool sets that in front of the analysts usually get forgotten about. Like, uh, and, and which causes, you know, either military analysts or folks to say they come out with these like unique little applications on the fly to help their current workflow right in front of them. Um, and, and I think it's good. I think people forget that the analyst doesn't need a new application. Sometimes they need a quick little utility, a quick conversion tool or a quick, I, I need something to make my daily life pushing it over the edge. And I haven't seen too much of that. I, I mean, it's, it's good under, uh, underspoken per se. Everybody's trying to find the big solution to get the hurdle. But what I like to see is the toolbox, open up the toolbox. Here's a bunch of simple tools. The guy can use to either convert, search, discover, whatever, and, and, and siphon through the data and make sense of it, um, without having to buy some massive license, um, for some application that my, my rule of thumb is if you need training for an application, something's wrong. And I know most applications need training. You know, you look at your, look how many buttons Esri's got on, on their software, right? Um, Socket GXV, our, um, Remote View, et cetera. Awesome tools. But anytime you need training for a tool, there's something wrong with the workflow. Um, and that's that's my rule of thumb there. If, if and, But it goes back to why Google Earth was so simple. Simple. That's a great answer. That's a lot more thoughtful than mine. Actually, my answer is like, I just, I mean, I usually use the conference. I go get my pen supply for the year. Uh, that's really been, <laughs> but, you know, that's really my main reason I go. It's a very expensive um, you know, swag, collection. swag collection mission. And, you know, I, I get loaded up on pens. Um, you know, you know um, sometimes the swag at the booths is good. Once in a while, there'll be like a cool thing. Like, you know, who can't use another like USB to lightning converter so, keychain? So, so so what's the coolest swag you picked up at GeoEnt? That's a great question. Um, but that I can I can diverge into a story based on swag okay. because the coolest swag was a combination of two companies' swags 
on an exciting mission on the show floor um, that my company at the time happened to be a part of. So um, I work for a company, um, CACI Khaki, at the time. This was in San Antonio. The which which uh, which which San Antonio year? What year? It was, I want to say, 2010, 2011. No, I meant there had to be 2011. Yeah. It was 2010 was New Orleans. Got it. Yeah, it's, this is like the Super Bowl. I can't remember what, what is what. Um, <laughs> Super Bowl. <laughs> um, and so we had a booth, and across the aisle from us was a company, I think, called Orbital Insight. Right. And so our booth giveaway was balsa wood gliders. Pretty cool. You know, not like amazing, right? But it's standard stuff. Pretty cool. They had like um, a balsa rocket that you could like wind the little rubber band propeller. Pretty cool, right? So it was like the last day of the conference. It was pretty slow. I was on booth duty in with a bunch of us, and and we started chatting with them. And you know, somebody I don't remember who said, "Hey, yeah." took their balsa wood rocket, took our balsa wood glider, rubber banded the two together. So all of a sudden we've got this sort of <laughs> cruise missile <laughs> and, and we let it off and it flew all the way almost to the top of the show floor. And I'm trying to remember without exaggerating, but I think it probably flew 30 yards across the floor landed right in the oracle booth this guy was doing this huge presentation for like you know dozens of people and it landed dramatically and busted into like a hundred pieces and the guy got really mad he's like and he saw that we had done it and he started coming toward the booth so we abandoned our booth and we literally got out of the convention center because that guy was mad but we were of course laughing hysterically so, so, the, so, you know, the power of combining the swag, I guess, is the, is the moral of the story. I, I'm not sure I have found as cool swag story as that. I, I would say some of the cooler swag things like I actually got one upstairs. Um, Mapbox provided these uh, metallic cups, metallic mugs, and they had the map on the outside. That was one cool one. I still keep that one up there. Uh, another one that was one of my favorites is um, if they were, they were a hard find. If you, the good swag you get on day one, you'll never see it past that. Um, I believe it was, I'm not sure if it was DG or Maxar at the time, but they had these awesome, incredible umbrellas. And the umbrella top was um, uh, some kind of imagery mosaic. I mean, actually, it was just a gorgeous umbrella. <laughs> you know, you, think, you didn't think about it, but I mean, think about umbrella. I mean, think how often it might rain at a geo one too, especially here if you're in Florida, right? So, um, uh, so, so that was pretty cool. And I'm trying to think of anything else that comes to mind, but those were, I think, those are the big two that stick out for me. Um, but, but hey, it works. I not only remember the product, I only also remembered. Um, I also remember the company, <laughs> so it did its job even years later. Yeah, it's funny because, um, especially in the early ones, I also I had a young child at the time, and you know, my charge was to bring back everything as toys, basically, right? <laughs> all all the squishy globes and I brought bags. Yeah, despite you know, I would get the pens, and then yeah, it's cool, right? Because kids love that stuff, right? But you know. You had to bring it all home in that bag they gave you for the car. And it was always like, but it was always like 
our arch rival competitors logo on the bag. And so my, you know, I had to like literally spend 10 years with my kids using this bag that said like SAIC on it or booze Allen. Right. <laughs> and you know, that just, it bothered me back then a little more now. I don't really care. Um, but um, yeah, I, you have gotten me on the lookout for swag then. Uh, I'll admit I've not collected swag in a number of geo just because uh, at some point we're like, we brought too much back and I don't know what I'm going to do with it all. Like you said, I probably had enough pens one year to last me about four or five years. Um, oh, oh, that will say this. It's another piece of swag that I might have still one or two laying around. When I, I worked for DG or at the time GOI, GOI years ago, uh, 2013. And uh, I know it seems like a little thing, but I thought they were cool. They had the, you know, eyeglass wipes. And there were imagery mosaics on those. So just what's in it? Just really cool imagery wipes. And now to me, I think I have a couple GOI swag products laying up around here because they, I, at one point I grabbed a marketing, uh, a lot of, a lot of swag from them when I worked for them. Um, but at, once in a while, I'll see GOI swag and people wearing a t shirt, like my old boss. I think he has a t shirt. So, but you see the companies that have kind of died out over the years. You see it, you're like, oh, Oh, that's cool. That's a rare find. It's almost like seeing a extinct animal in the wild. You know? <laughs> so big, big deal though. Cause you're like, Oh, I know who that is. I know that's awesome. So, um, all right. Uh, so, so with that said, I think it's a good time to wrap up. Uh, Mike, I appreciate your time here talking with your, uh, not your, your history geospatial over the last 30 years, <laughs> a little bit of geoint history of geoint, some, some, uh, interesting activities that happened to the geoint. And, uh, at some point look forward to talking with more stories that, yeah, I hope to see you at geoint and, uh, maybe we'll have some on-site discussions on camera there too. Right. Let's do it. It's been great to be here, and uh, you know, let's 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 come back with me and a couple of our other friends for a bigger group session and talk about some of this stuff. Sounds good. Well, we'll talk to everybody next time. This has been a great episode of Late Night Geo, and uh, well, once again, um, Adam Simmons with Mike De La Fleur, uh, wrapping up. Talk to everybody next time. <laughs>